Our in-depth study of the book of Philippians now brings us to verses 6 through 11, where we see Paul talking about finishing the work that God has begun in them. In other words, continuing the work until the race is finished. And the Christian life is compared to a race that has a distinct beginning, middle, and end. You may start the race very well. You may come out of the starting blocks running really well. You may have stumbled out of the starting blocks, but you got your stride and you're running the middle of the race really well. But I've got to think for me, the most important part of the race is finishing it. And that might be, be because I'm closer to the finish than I am the beginning. I met the Lord 45 years ago. Is that right? Could that be possible? Was that long ago that I met the Lord? So I've, I've had this long middle section, but as I come to near the end, I want to finish well. I, and, and a lot of people aren't finishing well. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of pastors and teachers that are not finishing well these days. And I want to make sure that I finish well. And I think that that's our heart as well. We want to run the, the race well when God gives us in the beginning. We want to pick it up and run the middle with stride and we want to finish the race well. So I just want to give you a few verses, three verses that talk about the Christian race, this comparison. The Bible definitely compares the Christian life to a race. So this first one is in 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that those who run all run in a race, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. So he's encouraging us that we would, does the Christian life, we'd run in such a way that we would obtain the prize. In, to the Galatians, as they were beginning to go back into Judaism, they were tempted through the Judaizers, had, had been effective in, in, in swaying them. Judaizers were those that were believed that all Christians, all the Gentiles should be circumcised. They should all keep kosher laws. They should, um, and, and they were effective in getting the, the Gentiles to do certain things. And so he says to them in, in Galatians 5, 7, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So these, these people are allowed to come in and give them these lies and stop them from being able to run really well. And then in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, and if you're going to go to any passage about the race, you got to go to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, right? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and the great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12, 1 is Hebrews 11. It's all of those who by faith did all of these things. It's examples. We have all of these examples of, of men and women who lived by faith and died by faith. And since we're surrounded by such great examples, such a great cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's not a sprint. It's not a year. It's not two years. It's our entire life. We will live for Christ. We will die for Christ. And if he comes back, we will return. Uh, he will return for us and we will be caught up to meet him in the air. Uh, and if you meet him during the tribulation period, you'll wait for that return of Jesus or go uh, to see him. So let's get into our text. So this is a very familiar verse. It's a, a verse that I memorized as a teenager. I had flashcards that were given to me by our Sunday school had maybe 25 passages in it. And I diligently memorized every one of them. This was one of them. Um, being confident of this very thing, 
that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ would be the return of Christ for his church. That would be the day of Jesus Christ, that he's going to do this work. He says being confident. And, and when we quote this verse, we usually, well, we quote it out of, out of context, but it has a context. And so what is the reason that Paul's confident? When we quote it out of context, we just get this idea that Paul's confident and he would be confident of any Christian that they're going to finish the race. When in reality, I would say that's true for genuine Christians. A real, genuine Christian, God began the work and God's going to finish it. And, and, and notice that he says here, God has begun a good work in you. Paul planted the church. People could have come up to Paul and said, man, you planted that church 10 years ago in Philippi and it's doing great. You did such a good job, Paul. What a great job you did. But Paul, I don't think, was real confident that he was really involved in planning that church. I think when you comes to, so he's, he's floundering in Turkey, what, what is called Asia Minor in biblical times. He's floundering there. He's, he's gotten up to the north side and he wants to go to Asia, but the Holy Spirit forbids him from going that way. We know that he ministers to the Galatians who are right there because of an, of an, of an infirmity. We don't know it was an eye infirmity, but we suspect that it was an eye infirmity that he had. But he says, I ministered to you because of an infirmity. You guys didn't look down on me because of that, he told them, and you'd give me your eyes if you could. So that's why we can make a connection there. Also, he talks about large letters that he signs his letters with. He writes the end of his letters with large letters. And so we feel like that could be, and most likely, some kind of an eye, eye problem that was there. And so then he has a vision. Come over here and help us, Macedonia. Macedonia is northern Greece. So Paul makes his way over to northern Greece, goes through a few places, and winds up in Philippi. He doesn't find a man there. And this is right when Luke joined them, by the way. So some believe that Luke was the man from Macedonia, and that as Paul made his way over there, that Luke joined him. And you can see where Luke joins them in the book of Acts because he goes from the third person to the first person. He goes from saying, and then they went and did this, and then Paul went and did that, to saying, and then we went and did this, and then we were there. So we know in the letter where Luke joins them. Luke is the author, of course, of the book of Acts. And um, so he gets to Philippi and he finds a woman. He finds several women, Jewish women, who meet by a river to pray, which means they probably don't have a synagogue. And the Bible says, uh, in, in Acts, it, it says, God opened Lydia's heart to the message of Paul. So was it Paul preaching the gospel that got Lydia saved? Or was it God moving in Lydia that her heart would be open for her to be saved? And, and I think that that has to happen to everyone who's going to commit their lives to Christ. There has to be, God has to open our hearts. He's got to have us at some point go, yeah, I, I want to do that. The message of the gospel is powerful, but it never stands alone. It is always with the work of the Holy Spirit that is persuading people to surrender to him. And so even the first convert, it wasn't Paul's great message. Luke could have said that. Paul was such a great teacher. He was so good at evangelism that when he told Lydia, she got saved. But he doesn't do that. And so Paul realizes it's God that started the work within Lydia. 
From there, he's harassed by a demon-possessed gal. This is his ministry in Philippi. And we don't know how long he was there. We know that he was in Thessalonica a little bit later on for three weeks. You, it's hard to plan a church within three weeks. Um, I, I had just listening to a random message on, on Philippians, uh, there was a guy talking about the planning of this church. And he says, he said, do you know how it's so beautiful when you're planning a church and, and God's spirit is so easily felt and there's so many good things going on and God's blessing in so many different ways. And it, this is what I said to myself when I was listening to him. Said no one who ever planted a church. Because <laughs> the reality of planning a church is difficult and hard. And I think every church planter needs to know that. Everyone that's going to go out and plant a church needs to know this is going to be tough. You are going to have the enemy who will stand against what you're doing because the enemy doesn't want a church out there. He doesn't want the gospel going out. He doesn't want people being taught and fed. And if he can stop it in the beginning, he will. If he can stop it before it gets rolling, he will stop it. Now, I'm not saying there might not be some random church out there that had this absolutely fantastic beginning that had no problems or struggles, but hey, all the churches we planted and the church plant here had its share of difficulties from day one. So Paul's harassed by a demon-possessed gal, and he finally casts the gal out, and, and this is somebody's property, and she can no longer tell the future because the demon's not in her anymore. And so Paul gets arrested, beaten with rods. The rods were between three and four feet long, and were brutal. It was a brutal form of public beating that he went through. And then he's put in stocks in prison and they decide to sing, start singing hymns, which I, I love. What do you do when you're beaten, arrested unfairly, beaten and thrown to prison? You worship the Lord. That's what Paul did. It's Paul and Silas did. And while they were singing, the chains fell off. The stocks broke open. The, 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 the earthquake happened. The, the stocks fell open and the door to the prison swung open. And the Philippian jailer ends up coming in in a little while and saying, what must I do to be saved? What did Paul have to do to get that guy saved? He just showed up. What, what, do, I, what do I need to do to be saved? Now he saw God moving, but it was God. So Paul, as he thinks back, and he said this already earlier in this book, right? We saw that last week. He said, I have great joy when I think of the remembrance of you guys. He thinks back to those beginning days. I'm not sure that I would have great joy I might think of, you know, well, we were looking for a guy. We found a few people, demon-possessed gal, jailer. That was the start of the church. That was the beginning of it right there. But what he knew is this was a God thing. Ten years later, as he sits down to write a letter to them to thank them for sharing with him, he's in prison in Rome. We're going to talk in detail about Paul's prison experience next Wednesday. And they show up, Epaphrodites comes from them with a gift. Now, what you should know about the church in Philippi is it was a very impoverished church. It was in a region that just didn't have a lot of ways to make money. It wasn't in any trade route. It, it didn't have any kind of a, of, of a source of, of um, uh, uh, to be able to make money uh, of anything that they were creating or making or could mine. There's just, just was nothing there. And compared to the church at Corinth, which was right on the ocean and got a lot of their money from trade, Philippi had none, but they showed up to help Paul in his ministry. They were generous, and Paul's moved by that. 
And, and as Paul writes this letter to them, you can sense that. And so this is 10 years later as Epaphras shows up and he writes this letter back to him. The letter of Philipp, uh, Philippi was written in around 62. This is the fourth from the last letter of Paul. If I've got it right, he writes Philippians, then he writes 1 Timothy, then he writes Titus, then he writes 2 Timothy. Those are his last letters. So Paul is coming to the end of his life here now as he writes this. And, he, and he's remembering back and he sees that God did the work. And this is the truth for all of us. All of us need to identify that. There may have been someone that God used in our lives. We may have heard the message from someone. You know, I hear people when they get saved by someone famous like Billy Graham. You know, I was listening to Billy Graham and I got saved. Or I was listening to Chuck Smith and I gave my life to the Lord. What well, was it Billy Graham? Was it Greg Laurie? Was it Chuck Smith? Or was it God opening up your heart? God began a work in you. Now, this is significant because it wasn't you beginning the work in you. It was God beginning the work in you. God beginning the work in me. So he's going to finish it. And I think that's part of his confidence that God has begun a good work in you and will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, which is, that, that's the finishing race. That's when we finish the line. The, when we who are alive will finish that line when Jesus comes back for his church. So then he says in verse seven, and this is still thinking in the context of confidence, that he's confident that God's going to complete this work. Just as it is right for me to think of this of you, so he says, this is why, because I have you in my heart. He says, God's knit us together and, and I've got that relationship with you. And whatever, it's kind of a little bit of a nebulous statement. I have you in my heart. But whatever Paul means by that, it gives him confidence that they have a real genuine relationship with Christ. And God's going to complete it. He's going to talk about love here in a moment. We're going to talk about that in this message. And so we should have one another in our hearts. We should be close enough with other believers that we could say, I have you in my heart. Paul did. He says, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So as Paul is preaching the gospel and the confirmation of the gospel, which is, well, we'll talk about that here in a moment. He's confident that God's going to finish it. He says, you are partakers with me in grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I longed with all affection uh, how greatly I long for you with all affection in Christ Jesus. So all of this comes together to, to back up Paul's confidence that they are genuinely saved. Now, is, does this verse back up once saved, always saved? And I, I need to point out, first of all, that I've changed my view on this from years of preaching. This was my view for a long time that you could lose your salvation. You could leave your salvation. You're not going to lose it, right? Well, I lost my salvation. Where is it? I've got to go look for it. Uh, but you could leave it, but it was very, very difficult. And once you did, you couldn't come back. That had been my thinking for years. That's the way that I, I saw the concept of losing salvation. Jesus said, I'll leave the 99, I'll go after the one. But then going through the book of Hebrews this last time and coming to Hebrews chapter six and really looking at when it says there, it's impossible to renew them to repentance that he's really not talking about, he's talking about the Hebrews who were there, who had all this information, who would, would commit the unpardonable sin. It's the same thing that Jesus talked about when the scribes and Pharisees had a lot of information. They should have known Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, they did know, they had enough information to know, but they rejected him. And so now it was impossible for them to be saved. Same with the Romans, guys. It's impossible for them to be renewed to repentance. 
And we would not say of anyone uh, that was a Christian and then walked away that they couldn't come back. We've seen in the Bible too many people do that. We've seen too many people out of experience do that. We know that we say to someone who has walked away, who is an apostate now, we say to them, come back to Christ. Jesus will receive you. And so I, 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 changed, I changed my view that I do believe that if you were genuinely saved, that God will complete that work in you until the end. I, I do believe that. I believe he will do it. Now, I changed my mind once. Maybe I'll change it again. Uh, I just want to be open to what the word of God says. I don't want to just believe something because I've believed it forever. I want to believe what the truth is. We're trying to approach the word of God so we can know what we believe and we ought to be able to give an answer for the things that we do believe. And um, at some point, we'll talk a little bit more about reformed theology or the five, five points of Calvinism. And I, I now say I'm a one-point Calvinist and the perseverance of the saints is my point, okay? All the other stuff I have problems with. I, I do believe man is totally depraved. I just don't mean it in the way that they do. So they have total depravity. They've got limited atonement, which they believe only, only um, some people can be saved. Other people are lost forever. They believe in irresistible grace that people who are chosen to be saved can't be lost. So it's the opposite of limited atonement and perseverance of the saints. Um, and which one did I miss? I missed one. Uh, well, whatever it is, we'll, we'll cover it at another time. I'm not trying to cover it today. Uh, we'll cover it at another time. So I do believe that, that Paul is saying, I'm confident that you have, have a genuine faith. Now, what about the person who does become an apostate? And let's just use an extreme example. Somebody's gone to church for 20 years and they become a demon worshiper. Okay, they, they, they worship the devil. That's what they do. And um, there, there's neither side, neither extreme. In no one would say that that person is currently saved. One side would say he lost his salvation or left it. The other side would say that he never really was a genuine Christian. If he was a genuine Christian, he would have never have become an apostate and become a devil worshiper. So everybody, everybody sees them as lost. I bring that up because the very first time that I ever ran into once saved, always saved, the concept, it was by a gal who was completely backslidden, doing things she shouldn't do. And when I talked to her about it, she said to me, don't worry, I raised my hand in church and I went forward, and I gave my life to Christ. And something didn't sit right with me even as a teenager, that you could just raise your hand and go forward and then go live however you want to live. If a person is not, the Bible, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. First John says, this is the litmus test for real genuine Christianity. If you love me, then you'll keep my commandments. You will, uh, if you love him, you'll keep his commandments. Doesn't mean you always keep it. And we know that because the same book says, if you do sin, confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive you. But there, there has to be a real genuine transformation. We don't want, we don't want to pretend we don't want to just try to get our ticket punched for heaven and not really genuinely be saved. We want to be saved. And it's not about heaven only. It's about here and what God's doing inside of us here each today. And so uh, when we talk about this good work he began in you, he's not talking about your ministry. He's talking about a work God's doing in you. He's not talking about me being pastor in this church for 37 years that God's going to complete. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the good work that God started in you. 
In, in Ephesians 2.10, it says we are his workmanship created for good works in Christ. So those two things together. We're his workmanship. He's doing work in us and he creates us to do good works in him. But the work is done inside of us. It's not just about the work. Sometimes Christians conflate the success in ministry to success in their personal relationship with Christ. And that's always a mistake. It's always a mistake for a pastor. His church is successful. And he thinks, wow, then my walk with Christ might be successful. And it may not be at all. Because God gives gifts to men and we see God use people in the Bible like Samson, which causes us to question. I mean, this guy was all messed up. You couldn't get anybody who's as messed up as Samson and yet he's in the hall of faith. We, we assume since he's in the hall of faith that he's in heaven. I don't know whether that's a right assumption or not, but God's doing a good work in you because he has predestined for you a plan, work that you would do for him. And God's continuing to do that work. Here's how I feel about that with me personally. Lord, I don't know if it's fast enough. I wish you'd speed it up, God, a little bit. I know my inner man is being renewed day by day. I, I pray for that. I pray for that with you and I pray for that with me, that God would be causing me to grow more and be doing this work inside of me day by day. But I also know there's things I need to be doing while he's doing the work inside of me that I can help him out that we can get to that good work faster. But it's God doing it. So then in verse seven, he says, uh, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So we'll talk about his chains next week. We could have stopped and done it here, but we'll do that next week because he brings it up again. And when we think about his, it's just good enough for us to know right now that he's probably under house arrest in Rome. And that's why he can write letters from there. He can bring in somebody to dictate letters for him because he's under house arrest in Rome. He is in chains and he does have soldiers that are there. So don't just think about him being, you know, in some really comfortable home and not really in, in, in prison because he is. Uh, if you go to Rome, make sure to visit the maritime prison that's there. It's believed, we, we don't have anything biblical, that we, we, but we believe that Paul was thrown into the maritime prison, that we got reasons to believe that, uh, and he would not write letters from there. It was literally a pit that was in the ground that they threw people in. And um, so Paul is in chains, he is in prison as he writes this letter. And then he says, talking about, I'm, it's right for me to think this, in defense of confirmation of the gospel. I love the fact that Paul is preaching about the gospel 10 years after he wrote his first letter to the Thessalonians, and he talked about the gospel there. He talked to them about the power of the gospel. He talked to the Corinthians about the power of the gospel, to the Romans about the power of the gospel. Uh, in so many of his, his books, he brings up how he came to them. To the Corinthians, he says, I didn't come to you with the wisdom of the world, but I came to you in the power of the gospel. Another place he says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Let me give you Romans 1.16. This is, this is where he talks to the Romans about it. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and then the Greek. And this is how Paul, when he went into a city, he would go to the Jews first and then he would go to the Greeks. 
but it is the gospel that is the power of salvation. And it is the gospel today that is the power of salvation. If Paul were writing a letter today, it would be, it is just as true. And that's why we ought to make sure that the gospel is the center of what we are presenting to a lost and perishing world. If we want to see them get saved, we've got to give them the gospel. There could be all kinds of different ways in which we reach them for Christ, all kinds of different methods. People have good ones. Some people use tracks. Some people, you know, uh, use different methods to try to win them to the Lord. What I say is be led by the Spirit. You know, don't just go out and try to do some method because everybody's different. And God can open the heart of someone, be led by the Spirit. So Paul gives what the gospel is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here's what he says. This is uh, verses 1 through 6 in 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. So we hear it, we receive it, and we stand in it. Here it is. By which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And there's the kind of tension you find in the Bible with the once saved, always saved. You find things like that, unless you believed in vain. Why did Paul say that? So there's tension in the scriptures with this issue, and I think it's there on purpose. God wants there to be tension there. He wants us to be working on our Christian walks while he's working in us Amen. on it. And so he says, then he says this, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received. He didn't make it up. He received it. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Now that's the gospel. We're going to see there's a little bit more to it, but Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. It's not just that Jesus died for you. And if you receive him, then you can be saved. It's according to the scriptures. We can go back to the Old Testament and we can see that the Old Testament said that he would die for us for he would die for our sins. All what is it? Psalms 53, 8. All of our iniquity is placed upon Isaiah 53, 8. All of our iniquity is placed upon him. And he died for our sins. So the Old Testament tells us clearly that's not the only place. There's a lot of places. And so that's why when Paul would go into a Jewish synagogue, and he would begin to converse with them, it says that he would speak to them of how Jesus was the Messiah from the scriptures. He would go to the Old Testament passages and he would be able to persuade them that Jesus was the Messiah. And we should know that, by the way. We should know the passages in the Old Testament that speak of the Messiah and how Jesus fulfilled those because the gospel is Jesus dying for us according to the scriptures. And then he says, and that he was seen this is after the resurrection by Cephas, which is Peter, and by the 12. And after this, he was seen by over 100 at once, or excuse me, over 500 at once, of whom the greater part remain to this present day, but some have fallen asleep. So the gospel is Jesus dying for our sins according to the scriptures, and it's evident. He rose from the dead and he appeared to people, and this is what we preach. We preach that you can have your sins forgiven by receiving Jesus as your Savior. This is the mechanism of salvation, according to Paul in Romans 1.16. It is the power of God unto salvation. That's the mechanism. We start preaching something else. If, if we decide, if we think as a church, you know, I, I just want to be known as the 
as the, the, the happy church, or I just want to be known as the faith-filled church, or I just want to be known as the, the loving church. Look, all churches should be faith-filled. All churches should be loving. All churches should be full of joy. I don't know about happy, the happy church, but I don't think I'd go to a church named the happy church. There are churches called the happy church, by the way. You might think, that's a good name. I'll go plant a happy church. <laughs> happy, happy, happy. Um, so he, he says two things about it. And in defense and confirmation of the gospel. He's talking about being confident with them in defense of the gospel. He saw the gospel in their lives and that allows him to defend continuing to preach that gospel. He's seen people changed. And, and the confirmation, what's the confirmation of the gospel? It's that people continue to get saved. You present the gospel and people get saved. Maybe not at every, not, maybe not every time, maybe not every person you ask, them, maybe not at every service that you give people a chance to give their lives to Christ. No one's pretending that it does. I, I shouldn't say that. Some churches do. I went to a church one time. It, there was like 20 of us there on a Wednesday night service and the church evangelist was preaching and he got into his altar call and he, and he went like, raise your hand, raise your hand, raise your hand, raise your hand. And then he went, God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. And I was being bad and I was looking around. I'm like, no one's raising their hand. I, I think he felt as a, as a church evangelist, he better be getting people saved because that's his job. He's the church evangelist, so I shouldn't say that. But it is the confirmation of the gospel. People continue to get saved. That's the way they get saved. They don't get saved any other way. That's the power of God into salvation. If you are not born again, if you don't receive the forgiveness of your sins from Jesus, you will not be saved. You don't get saved by going to church. You don't get saved by growing up in a family. You don't get saved by being a good person. You get saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why we find it so often. It's, it's brought up over a hundred times in the New Testament. And you can, you, can, you can look up every time that it's brought up but with a simple Strong's Concordance or today, a simple Strong's Concordance app. <laughs> Put an app on your phone, go to a place where the gospel is at, highlight it, scroll down. You'll find every place that that's given. It says, it goes on to say, uh, you all are partakers with me of grace. This is connected to the word koinonia, which is fellowship. We, we, have, we have grace in common. There may be other differences. I, I assume there's some of you here who would go, well, I disagree with you about once saved, always saved. Or I disagree with you about the rapture of the church. But you hear me talk about it all the time. And I've always said that if, if we all agree on everything, then I understand unity. Unity is really easy when we're like each other and we agree on everything. But when we're different and we believe things that are, are different, not about salvation, not about the, the, the important things, but other things, then we believe that then we can be unified. That's a real power in unity that we can go. You know what? We, we are we are partakers of grace together. We are partakers of salvation together. We are partakers of his Holy Spirit together. And there's something really powerful about that. And he knew that with them. He knew this was God's work. It wasn't Paul's work. And he knew that they were partakers of that grace that was given to him. Then he says in verse eight, for, um, uh, for God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. 
and we'll get more into his love for them as he talks to them about their gift and Epaphrodites who came and brought the gift to them. So then we come to verse nine and he comes now to the last part that makes him confident. And again, I just find this so interesting to be studying Philippians right after we studied 1 Thessalonians because he talks about so many of the same things with a decade in between them, with a lot happening too in his life. Sometimes a decade can feel short if there's no life changes. But if there's life changes that happen, a decade can, can feel like a long time. And Paul's had a lot of changes. And so he says in verse nine, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. They already have love because he says that your love still may abound more and more. But he prays that their love would abound more and more. And he he's prays this exact same thing for them in 1 Thessalonians. He prays that their love would abound more and more and more in the knowledge and discernment. He's asking that their love would abound more and more in knowledge as they, they grow in the knowledge of God, as they grow in the knowledge of each other, and then discernment. This word for discernment can also be judgment. So that as you're walking in love, you got to make some decisions. There, there are times to go, I don't know that this person is genuine. There's, there's a time to, to, to question that. We want to be careful that we aren't judging people unfairly, but sometimes there is an evidence and we need to see that. So uh, Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So what's the new commandment? He had, uh, old, the Old Testament said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with everything you have, heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself which I've often said, that works really well for me. I know how I want to be treated. So I want to treat people I love as a you know, neighbor as yourself. Uh, I, know how I, want, I know how I love myself. But Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And that's even a more powerful commandment because how has he loved you? And I'm supposed to love you like Christ loves you and like Christ loves me. So that's a, that's a deeper, I don't know if I want to say more genuine love, but it's a deeper, even more powerful love. And that's why Jesus said this is a new commandment. Then he says in verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. So he's still talking about the good work God's doing in them until the day of Christ, because he brings it up again until the day of, of Christ. But here he says he wants them to be sincere. They would approve the things that are excellent and be sincere. This is a prayer that I think we ought to pray regularly. It's a prayer that I do pray for myself, that my relationship with God and that the, the Christianity that I have would be sincere without hypocrisy is the way that I generally pray it. Sincere comes from a Greek word that means without wax. That's what the word means. Sincere, I think is how you pronounce it, without wax. And that's in a day when they made statues. And you know, there's, when, you, when you're, Looking at statues, you go to, to Rome or whatever, you go into a place where they found a bunch of statues, there's arms missing and there's, you know, noses missing. There's all those things. Well, that happened in, when they were making it too. You got this big piece of whatever, marble, you're chiseling out something and you accidentally knock off the nose. And you're like, all that work, gone. So the artist would grind some of the marble, mix it with wax, 
put the wax on the nose and put the nose back on the face. And so when you were buying something, a statue, you would say, is it sincere? Is it without wax? You just wanted to know. It's just a question you asked. Like when you're buying a car, was it ever in a crash? Right? Is it sincere? And so the word becomes to us without wax, sincere in our faith. Are you really sincere? Are you, are you living for Christ without hypocrisy and really sincere? Doesn't mean you don't struggle. It doesn't mean you don't sin. Doesn't mean you don't need to find forgiveness for that. It means you really want to live for him. You really want to live wholeheartedly, sincerely for him. He says, without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness. When we walk righteous before God, there's fruits that are in our lives because of that righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's talk for just a moment about finishing the race. So we want to finish the race well. And in 2 Timothy, this is the last letter Paul wrote, 2 Timothy 4, 8, Paul says this, Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but to all who love his appearing. Later on in this letter, Paul will say in Philippians 3, 14, I press towards the goal, the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And finally, in Galatians 6, 9, he says, and let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Keep up the race. race fi finish it until the end. This is how we finish the race strong, through God's work in our lives. God's, just like he started it, he needs to finish it, right? So it's through God's work, through walking in love, and through being sincere. I think we can take this passage that's the context of God who started a good work and who's going to finish it, that those are the three things that we want to be doing. Letting God do his work, walking in love towards one another and being truly sincere towards God. And I think that we'll, we'll, we'll cross the finish line well. We'll finish the race well. And may that be the case for every one of you here. May you finish the race well. Even if you stumble and fall in the beginning or the middle, most important part's got to be finishing it, Right? coming across that finish line and finishing well. May we, may we finish the race well. Stand with me, would you? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this passage and for speaking to us about your work in our lives. Thank you that you have started a work in us, that it wasn't the person that shared the message of the gospel with us or that we heard the message of the gospel from. It was you that opened our hearts, like Lydia, to the gospel. And Lord, we pray that we would finish that race well. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.